0: If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Some technical difficulties here. If you would please turn with me to Psalm 34. And let us hear the reading of the word of God. of David when he changed his behavior before Ahimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt His name together. I sought the Lord and He answered me. And delivered me from all my fears, those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and delivers them. O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good, blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. May God bless this, the reading of his word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we seek your grace. Lord, we have come singing your praises. And we thank you for the opportunity to join our voices together in song, to unite our voices with the saints that are around the world today, worshiping on this your day. Lord, even uniting our voices with the saints who have gone before us into glory, with the angels of heaven as we praise you. Lord, we have come here hungry and needy, with nothing to offer but seeking you. And so, Lord, we ask that you would labor through the weakness of your servants, that you would hide your servant behind the cross and make yourself known, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit in such a way that those who are here would know they have heard from the living God and give praise and honor and glory to you and to you alone, that none would be left for man, for Lord, you alone are worthy. These things we pray in the name of your Son, our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. One of the ongoing challenges that I face as a parent and one that I've seen a fair amount of on this journey as we've gone to different places and tried to expose our children to new foods and cultures, is that as we try new foods, my children are rather averse to the concept. And trying to get them to try it with an open mind is really the challenge, right? Uh, there's a, when you you get into a place and you go, well, my son, this is, this is a pupusa. You need to try it. And he goes, I have no idea what that is, and so it's going to be gross. And I'm like, no, just because you don't know what it is doesn't mean it's going to be gross. But there's a similar phenomenon for us as the children of God. We see trials. We see new circumstances that are daunting and overwhelming, and we view them like children see flan or caviar. And even though we're prone to hold our nose and choke it down or try to feed it to the dog under the table... David calls us to taste and see. Taste and see the Lord is good. That what he provides is good. That what he has decreed is good. And for our benefit, as well as his glory. So I want to deal with the text this evening, over the course of several points. First, I want to deal with experience of goodness. Secondly, the promises for righteous. The third is curses for the wicked. Fourth is Christ prophesied. Fifth is repentance and faith. And sixth is redefining prosperity. So we begin with the concept of experience of goodness. Now, our brother read earlier this evening kind of the the historical context for when David wrote this psalm. And when we read the story of David and his encounter with Achish at Gath, we wouldn't expect a psalm like this. Achish is here in our text referred to as Abimelech, as his title, kind of like Caesar or Pharaoh. And Akish would have had quite the grudge against David. David came into the city hoping to find some kind of refuge, but there was quite the animosity that was already present. Because David was not only part of the nation of Israel and was not only a man who had been anointed... But he was the one who had slain the champion of Gath, Goliath. David actually had Goliath's sword with him when he arrived at Gath. And we might think of David's escape as being a result of cunning. It was a brilliant spur-of-the-moment, light-on-his-feet kind of intelligence. He sees the circumstance, he sees that everything is going sour, and so so he feigns madness. He makes himself look like a crazy person, and he, he drools and he scratches on the walls. And so we might say, ah, what cunning David has. But David gives all the glory to his rescue to God. While subtly denouncing his own tactic, lest it be imitated, he emphasizes honesty and sincerity in the psalm. David boasts only of God, a tactic that we find Paul use when he quotes Jeremiah in 1 Corinthians one thirty one. So that as it is written, let no one let one who boasts boast in the Lord. Again, Paul writes in Second Corinthians eleven thirty to thirty three. If I must boast, I will boast in the Lord. And if I must boast, I boast in the things that show my weakness. The God and father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aratas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me. But I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Likewise, Saul had been rescued out of these kinds of circumstances, but he rendered all glory to God. When David describes himself initially as being fearful, as being distressed, when he realized his peril in the hands of the Philistines, which is, of course, mirrored in the First Samuel account, he calls himself this poor one. Not this brilliant one, not this cunning one, but this poor one. Meaning he lacked the strength. He lacked the ability to deliver himself and was indeed a beggar of God's mercy. So he turned from the destructive fear of man to the productive fear of God. And as Cassiodorus once said, here is not fear to be feared, but to be loved. Human fear is full of bitterness, but divine fear is full of sweetness. The one drives to slavery, the other allures to liberty. The one dreads the prison of Gehenna, the other opens the kingdom of heaven. So David sought God and called upon him with silent prayer. We can imagine David, as he scratches at the door, crying out in his heart for God to deliver him. He cast himself upon the rock of ages to be delivered. And God heard that desperate plea. He answered those cries for help and delivered him not only from his distress, but from his fears as well. And so from the safety of the cave of Ajalom, and more importantly, the safety of God as his refuge, David kneels before God and blesses him. He praises God with his mouth. And he calls upon those who are there with him. The other men and his family that are there with him in the cave of Edgelam. And he pleads with them to magnify Yahweh with him. And we always want to be careful when we come to these kinds of terms. Because, of course, we cannot make God greater. We cannot expand the God who is already infinite. We cannot make God larger or more glorious than he is. But as Philip Eveson described it, it's like the work of a telescope. Once the sun has gone down, you go outside with a telescope and you, you fixate that telescope on a particular star or a planet or on the moon itself. And if you point it towards the moon and you orient it and you get everything set up, it doesn't actually expand the size of the moon. But it brings the moon into focus in such a way that it, that it fills the entire view of the person who looks through And so that's the kind of thing that David is talking about. Let us bring God into focus. Let us fixate on him in such a way that all our fears and our terrors of humanity, all of our concerns for the things of this world are blotted out and brought into real perspective. So now we want to look at the promises for righteous, the righteous that are in our text. Because as is common for Hebrew wisdom and literature and poetry... David gives us the image of a righteous man and the blessings that that righteous man receives in order to show the sure promises of God. This is kind of the ideal situation. If there were a man who is perfectly righteous, this is what the circumstances would look like. This is what we could expect for him. And this man, this perfect man, this righteous man seeks God. This is the ideal that we are to strive after, meaning that he seeks relationship with God and guidance from God, willing to submit to that guidance as it comes. The righteous man fears God, but not man. And he takes refuge in God. He is righteous in God's eyes of judgment. It is this man whom God sends his angel to camp surrounding. God will send his angels to camp surrounding this man and to rescue him. There are multiple promises and accounts. Of such work of angels for God's people. In 2 Kings chapter 6 verses 15 through 17, we see the army of angels that surrounds the Syrians who are about to attack Elisha and his servant. It's one of those great exhilarating passages, right? The servant wakes up and he looks around and they're completely surrounded. And he wakes up Elisha and he's terrified for what's about to take place. And Elisha almost laughs at him and goes, Lord, open his eyes. And, he, and God opens his eyes to perceive that indeed that army that surrounds them is surrounded by God's army. And then, of course, the Syrians are blinded. And I'll let you read the rest of the story on your own. In Psalm 91, verses 11 through 12, it says, For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In Luke chapter 16 and verse 22, we see another poor man, like in our text. We see that it is angels who carry Lazarus to glory. Yet the language of the angel of the Lord is often used to describe a unique manifestation of God in space and time prior to Christ's incarnation. Angel means messenger. And one person of the Trinity repeatedly enters time and space to appear as that messenger of the Godhead. And for these, what we call theophanies, we can look to the angel who visited Abraham, Jacob, Moses in the burning bush, Joshua at the banks of Jordan. And this language of the encircling camp would draw us to the language of God's presence. As that Shekinah glory cloud that was a wall between the Israelites and the Egyptians before the crossing of the Red Sea in Exodus chapter fourteen and verse twenty, returning to our psalm, David says that this righteous man lacks nothing. what an amazing image he lacks nothing that is good from for him, and as we saw in, as we see in psalm twenty three and verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. As a kid, I always thought that that meant that somehow we were supposed to stop desiring things. But it means that we, we need nothing. There's nothing that we need that is not provided for us by our God in his perfect wisdom. His, this righteous man's bones are not broken. This doesn't mean that a broken bone is necessarily a sign of God's judgment. The fact that I've never had a broken bone does not make me more righteous than those of you who have. But this is talking about, uh, as one commentator put it, the structure and strength of the godly man will not be broken. He is redeemed and found innocent. Though as we will see, this is not an effect. This is the cause. Because he has been redeemed and because he has been declared innocent, The rest of these things take place. So now we want to briefly turn to the curses for the wicked in our passage. In contrast to the righteous one who is seen by God with love and pity, the wicked are seen with contempt and with judgment. God will remove their memory from the earth. In this life, their glory is often taken away. And they are either forgotten or only remembered with contempt we can think of some of the great historical figures who had this great rise to power. But by the end of their life, they were treated with contempt. They were outcasts themselves. But the fullness of this is how their memory will be wiped away in the new heavens and in the new earth. Sealed with them in the vaults of hell. We are told that the, the wicked man is slain by his own evil. And as you can see through the course of Scripture, there's often a, a kind of poetic justice that God, that God has in his outworking and in bringing about tastes of judgments as we go. Um, the, same, the same nation whose Pharaoh sought to slay all of the children of, of God's people by casting them into the river, had their own children slain in the final plague. But the fullness of this is in the final judgment, where it is their works that will actually condemn them. And he who hates God's people will be found guilty. But now we want to turn to Christ prophesying. I've been teaching this series on the Psalms in my own church for about a year now and it's been a huge blessing for me but one of the things that I keep coming back to with my congregation is telling them that we haven't really understood the psalm until we found Christ in it and I describe it as it's kind of like when you're a kid and you go to the doctor's office and they give you the Where's Waldo book and you open it up you know Waldo's on the page your job is to try to find Waldo and when we come to the psalms we know Christ is there But sometimes it takes us a while in order to identify Christ in the psalm, to find His place in it. And Christ here is first seen as the angel of the Lord, He who encircles the elect, who encamps around them, not just to provide us some protection against earthly troubles and woes. No, Christ encircles His elect with His righteous works, to rescue them from judgment. He clothes his people in righteousness. When we read of the righteous men. We should feel how far short we fall. Of these descriptions. We should read this. And with a, a real understanding of the nature of God's law. Of God's standards of righteousness. We should read through it. And, and feel a bit of discouragement at first. To say I, I don't meet the standards. I haven't fulfilled the requirements to be called the righteous man. We don't merit God's deliverance. We don't merit God's love. His good gifts from heaven. But, having been clothed in Christ's works, in Christ's righteousness through faith, we find favor in God's sight. And David calls us to taste of the Lord and see that he is good. What we do symbolically when we partake of the Lord's Supper, when we eat that bread and we drink that cup of Welch's grape juice or wine, whatever your uh, practice is here, when we partake of that symbolically, we also do that spiritually. By faith, God's people are fed of Christ. They are fed from Christ to give us strength. When we partake of that bread, it's an image of Christ's body, but it's that which also grants strength. Bread is a staple of life. And so spiritually we need that which will give us the strength to continue on. To persist, we need grace constantly in order to continue forward. We we are beggars at the throne of grace. That's our lives as Christians, and we do well to remember that. We need that constant source of strength that comes from Christ. But the wine is a symbol of joy. If you're in a place of starvation, right? If the land is in famine and you have a crop of grapes, you don't crush them and and set them aside in vats and wait for them to turn into wine while you and your family starve to death. You eat the grapes. In order for there to be wine, there has to be bounty. There has to be prosperity. God has to have provided above and beyond our needs. And it's a symbol of joy, of celebration. And these are the things that we are given by Christ. And we are called to taste and see that the Lord is good. To taste of Christ. As we see in 1 Peter 2.3, Indeed, you have tasted that the Lord is good. But of whom can it be more fitly said than Christ? Many are the afflictions of the righteous one. And from those afflictions which were due to us, Christ delivers us by taking them upon himself. And not one of Christ's bones were broken. He keeps all his bones, and not one of them is broken. And this was in, order to fulfill, it was in order to fulfill this. This is a prophecy of Christ that we see fulfilled in John chapter 19, verses 33 to 36. Here it says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness; his testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. But turning to this last, the second to last image of Christ is the one who hates, the one who is hated. he who hates Christ the righteous one of God the only truly intrinsic righteous one of God will be found guilty when we look at John 3 verses 18 through 19 we see whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God and this is the judgment The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. And finally, we see how Christ was delivered by God, the triune God, in the resurrection. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 through 21. You can turn there with me if you'd like. This is a little bit of a longer passage to read. But it's one of those passages, when I get into First Corinthians 15, I just really can't bear to cut it up and to use smaller sections. So I always wind up reading a big chunk out of it. But in First Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 14, it says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be mis- misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But now we want to turn to the concept of repentance and faith in our passage. Because David calls us, To fear God. But this is not paralyzing fear. This is not trembling underneath the bed. This is a fear that drives us to repentance. A comprehension and understanding of who God is. It's a fascinating study to see the way in which the fear of God is dealt with through the course of the scriptures. And how it progresses from a, a mere sense of morality to the way in which a cognizance of the law is what God uses to drive us. To repentance in its conjunction with faith. And how that fear becomes something that helps us to love God. Something that we would think quite entirely contradictory. But gradually that fear becomes not a fear of condemnation. But a fear of sinning against and grieving the one who has loved us. So when David calls us to seek peace and pursue it. It is true that we are to seek peace with our fellow man. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 12 and verse 18, as much as is within you. But more importantly, we must be at peace with God. Our sin incurs God's wrath. And only by pursuing Christ can we be reconciled. Only in Christ can peace be found. Which is why Paul calls it the gospel of peace. It's worth noting that we can also translate this verse in our psalm as seek peace and pursue Him. But God is near to the brokenhearted. God saves the contrite, repentant soul. As David said in Psalm 51 and verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, You will not despise. So take refuge. Take refuge in Christ. In God. In the God-man. By faith in His saving work. And if you do so, you are blessed. It's not a you will be blessed, but you are blessed. St. Augustine so succinctly put it, Thou hast prayed, thou art heard, Thou art blessed. Let me read that again. Thou hast prayed, thou art heard, thou art blessed. Now this is foolishness to the world that we live in. Because it's all about materialism. Prayer is about getting what you want, right? We pray, and then if we've prayed rightly, or if we've prayed with enough good works in our accounts to the divine vending machine... Where we've put in our good works and we hit B4 and the candy bar falls out. It's what I call candy bar theology. It's the way many of us are, we default to that kind of works-based thinking, right? But when we come as Christians in prayer, yes, we have petitions, we have these things that we ask God for. But we come before Him and just in praying and submitting to Him and trusting in Him, we are blessed. We are already Wrapped up in Christ. Whatever the external circumstances may be, we are blessed. Because God redeems the soul of His elect. And hidden within Christ, that man will not be found guilty. Hidden within Christ, that daughter of the King will not be condemned. God planned redemption in eternity past. He accomplished it in Christ in the first century A.D., and now he applies it to his saints. Verse 17 literally says, Cry out, and Yahweh has heard, and from all their distress he has delivered them. Our translators always put it into the same tense so that it doesn't sound so weird and strange. But I love the way it is in the original text because it emphasizes to us the sovereignty of God. Now, I can I can hear a petition from one of my children and I can try to go and accomplish it to the best of my ability. But here it says cry out and Yahweh has heard. Only God can begin the deliverance and often accomplishes all of the deliverance before the cry is even made. But now we want to turn to redefining prosperity in our closing because David asks us, what man delights in long life, or literally lives, and loves days of seeing good? So, I ask you, is this psalm a key to next-level thinking, to unlocking our best life now, with wealth, wealth, and prosperity for victorious living? If we omit enough verses and we divorce it out from all of its context, we can make it sound like it. But the psalm as a whole tells us something different. So what does David mean here? David is actually giving us the direction to real prosperity. He is giving us a key to real prosperity. But at the same time, he demands that we redefine what we call prosperity. It's not necessarily long life. But another life beyond this one. It is to find God as our prosperity. To quote Augustine again, it is one thing to seek anything from God. Another to seek the Lord himself. That's rebuked me many a time in my prayer life. But David knew many sorrows. He knew a great deal of grief and trial and turmoil. But he also knew God. And that made all the difference. We can say the same for Paul. In Romans chapter 8 verses 37 through 39, after describing immense sorrows and fierce persecution, Paul says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because that's all that matters. So also in Philippians 4 verses 11 through 13 Not that I am speaking of being in need for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The beginning of that verse, I love, because it's literally, um, I have learned in what I am to be content. Because he's talking about his situations and all the things that he has encountered, but he's also talking about the fact that He's comfortable in his own skin as a sinner saved by grace. As a man who has experienced the grace of God. God promises us in this psalm that our afflictions will be many. In 1 Peter 2:21 we read, "For to you this for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps." But God has also promised that He will deliver us in His perfect timing. That He will deliver us from the evil therein. From being permanently broken by them. That He will use them for our good. In 1 Peter 5.10 it says, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, And establish you. To quote Augustine one last time For that physician is cruel who heareth a man and spareth his wound in putrefaction. Meaning that when we come before God in our prayers, infected with sin, it's a painful thing to draw out that infection. And we cry and scream and flail about but it would be actually merciless of God to heed that and to leave off from purifying us and preparing us for glory. And God will deliver us from our fears unto peace. If we fixate our gaze on Him rather than the things of this world, like the apostles in Acts, we can sing even when shackled. So keep your tongue. From evil deceit, as the psalmist exhorts us, trust God with the outcome. Spurgeon once said, clean and honest conversation by keeping the conscience at ease promotes happiness. But lying and wicked talk stuffs our pillows with thorns and makes a life a constant whirl of fear and shame. All of this is interwoven for us to entrust ourselves to God, to taste and see that he is good. It's necessary for us to indeed come and keep our tongue from deceit. Where we simply trust God as we speak His truth. Serve and follow Him. And in tasting of Him, in tasting of Christ, you will see that He is good. Taste His providence and sense the good therein. Taste of God's Word and internalize it like Isaiah eating the scroll. This language is found in Hebrews 6 5, speaking of those who have tasted the goodness of the Word of God. And Peter directly quotes our Psalm in 1 Peter chapter 3 verses 10 through 14. Sorry, first Peter chapter three, verses ten through fourteen reads for whatever whoever desires to love life. And see good days. Let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to the prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then, resuming his own writing, Peter writes Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But finally, I want to take a look at verse 5 in our text, where David says that God's people have looked to him, and they shone and will never be ashamed. In Exodus chapter 34 and verse 29, we see how Moses' face shone after he spoke with God. Paul referenced this in 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For us to know God, to have seen and experienced God, to have tasted of Christ in repentance and faith is to be transformed. This should be something that is evident in our lives. The more time we spend with our God, the more time we spend tasting of Christ, tasting of His Word and seeing that He is good, the more it will transform us. Now this is not to say that you will literally emanate light. Unless you've recently been to Chernobyl, that's probably not the case. But if you've seen Christ by faith, that love should emanate from you and it's so easy for us especially when when we become when we get into the doldrums of the christian life to simply go well i'm a christian that's enough right my wife and i always talk about the enchanted grounds from pilgrim's progress where we're lulled to sleep where we cease to love on the people that are lost in this world and to talk to them about the matters of eternity You guys have a tremendous pastor. He's not paying me to say that, by the way. You guys have a tremendous pastor. But you have opportunities to share the gospel, to talk to relatives, to neighbors, to friends. And it's just, if nothing else, to say, come. Taste. See the Lord is good. Come and hear the word of life. I think of... In the, in the days of, of England during the Black Plague there were people who were clamoring to get in the doors of the church and it was a beautiful and terrifying time for the Puritans because all of the, all of the guys who were in it for the money all fled London because to stay and to preach the gospel very likely would end in your death it was a terrifying time for pastors But the real pastors, the ones who had all been kicked out of their pulpits for preaching the gospel faithfully, as soon as all of the other hireling shepherds had fled, they went in and they proclaimed the truth. And they said that men were packing through the doors. And these men preached as dying men to dying men. We should have that heart. Because, yeah, we're not dying of the black plague. At least I, I hope that's not going around out here. I'm just new to the town, but we're not we're not in that imminent danger. But we're, we should be conscious that we have at a limited time on this earth. God didn't rapture you the moment you were saved. Have you ever asked yourself that question? Why are you still here? Why has God provided for you to remain in this world for this time and this season? God's capable of taking you straight to heaven as soon as you believe. Some of us wish that would happen. God has left you here for a purpose. To serve Him. To serve His kingdom. To glorify His name. And I urge you to, to taste of Christ. To immerse yourself in His love and in His grace in such a way that it emanates from you in this world. People should see Christ in your life. They should hear the praise of God from your mouth. As you cry, like David did, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Let's come before the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you and praise you for all that you are in your grace and in your mercy and in your love. And so, Lord, we ask that you would apply these truths to our hearts. That You would draw us near to you and fill us up with your Holy Spirit. That You would make us more like Christ. Lord, that you would give us a hunger and a thirst to follow after you, to serve you. And Lord, we pray that those who are around us in the world who need Christ, who need to hear the gospel, would see him in us. Lord, as painful as it is for us to pray, do what is necessary to conform us to Christ, so that we might glorify you, so that we might serve you better. And Lord, we pray for any that are here that might not know You. We pray for these little ones that that they would know You from a young age. You would show them that You would show them Your law. You would bring them to the foot of Mount Sinai and show them their need. And then that You would show them what they need in Christ. Or that You would grant them not just repentance, but saving faith. That they might know You and serve You And love you for the days that you have for them. We raise all this up to you, Lord. We rest at your feet at the throne of grace, knowing that you, the judge of heaven and earth, will do right. And that you do all things well. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.